Well, thanks, Andrew. And uh, my name is Tim. It's uh, good to see you all this morning. If I don't know you, it's, uh, we're glad that you're here. And uh, again, as Andrew mentioned, um, sorry, it's, it's so cold in here. Last night I came in to kind of drop some stuff off, and there was a guy in here working on the furnace. And he's like, yeah, it's not working. Like, that's a great thing to find out Saturday evening before we're supposed to have church in here Sunday morning. And, and so I spent a lot of uh, my night last night trying to find space heaters in Kansas City. And so if you're looking or in the business or need a space heater, they are sold out everywhere. Um, but the good part of last night, at least, was uh, as I was driving um, on the interstate to another Lowe's, um, I saw a car just spin out in front of me and go off the road. And I uh, just had the thought, well, at least I get to preach on homosexuality tomorrow. So that's, uh, that's where I'm at today. I don't know where you're at, um, but uh, I know I need, I need God's help. And uh, so let's pray as we, uh, we kick off what's obviously a, just a complex and heated and thick um, topic. And I just feel a burden on that this morning and uh, just want to pray for God's help as we start. So let's, let's ask for that help now. Father, I love you and I thank you that you love me. And God, I'm, I'm just, I know in many of our hearts we don't really believe that. That's why we, we chase other things in our lives, that we think other things will give us the value, the love, the acceptance, the truth that you have. So God, in all our hearts, whatever that is, would you help us see it? That we love you more and serve you better and worship you more faithfully. So God, I ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, in whose name I need help to faithfully proclaim this morning. Amen. Well, the best story always wins. That's why whenever you see a movie, you always recommend it to other people. That's why whenever a good storyteller begins to tell a story, you will sit down and listen, no matter what you have to do. That's why there are moments as a pastor where I confess I'm timid to speak, because I fear I don't have the best story. Now, when I was in my mid-20s, I pastored a church in Indiana. And like most small world churches, we had our weird quirks. And one of our weird quirks was at the end of every service, we would gather in a circle. We would hold hands and, and pray. Which meant we would take prayer requests. And we would get all kinds of prayer requests. And one Sunday in particular, it was April, which meant prom season was coming this May, and that meant one of our high school students, Tony was her name, she raised her hand during our prayer time, and, and she asked, her prayer request was, was for a prom date. And so one of our adults, or some of our adults, rolled their eyes, one of our more compassionate people prayed for her, but I, for me, and myself, my story, I've, I've never forgotten that moment. Now, unlike most people in that circle, I knew where that prayer request was coming from. It was a place of deep loneliness, that it took more vulnerability than I'll ever show in my life to share that. And for Tony, that, that came from a deep place of pain for her. That Tony was a lesbian. And I was one of the only people in our church that knew that, and so when she shared that prayer request, I was one of the only people that knew she was asking for a female prom date. That Tony loved our church. Her mom became a Christian in our church, got baptized. Her uncle 
and her aunts and her cousins all got saved, were baptized in our church, and Tony loved to come. She was interested in Jesus, and we continually wrestled and had conversations over what it meant that she liked Jesus, loved our church, and yet experienced same-sex attraction. So we had lots of conversations, and those conversations came to a head one summer. When we went on a trip, we went on every summer. It was one of my highlights of the year. We took our high school students to a college campus where we would worship, and it was so much fun. You'd see, you'd see these high school students worshiping vulnerably, vulnerably before God, in many cases becoming Christians. In other cases, they'd ran away from the church or God, and they were running back. But it was one of my favorite weeks, except for this one, the one Tony came with us. And I just spent that week just burdened for her. While others were, were singing and were vulnerable, to me it was just, I, I just prayed and, and asked God, God, why don't you just take this from her? And she wants you, and yet she has these attractions that she thinks keep her from you. God, what are you doing here? So there was one night in the week where the speaker finished up and, and just sort of did kind of the, the altar call thing. If, if, if you don't follow Jesus and you want to, just stand up in your seat right now. And, and Tony, tears full in her eyes, stood up. So we left, left the auditorium. We found a bench on the college campus there. And we just we began to chat and talk. And I'll never forget that moment that when she especially looked in my eyes and just said, Tim, I want to follow Jesus, but I'm a lesbian. What am I supposed to do? That that question is what this morning is about for us as a church. This isn't just a theological question of what the Bible says. This is a deeply personal question, which means to me, I want to begin by speaking to those of us in the room who have or experience same-sex attraction. That my hope is, or if, if I was to sit down with you, I would never begin with a 45-minute discussion or sermon that was all one-sided. Me telling you, here's what I think, here's what I believe, here's what you need to believe. I would never start there. I would start by wanting to know and to listen and to hear your story. And I hope that if you experience same-sex attraction and you're part of our church, you will reach out to me and you will share your story with me. And I will get to hear and know and walk with you through whatever your story is. And so maybe you hear that and think, okay, well, does that mean the sermon's over? Are we done? It'd be great if it'd be short, right? And yet we, we as a church have felt compelled. We need to speak to this. <clears throat> that we want to be a church that preaches the entire Bible. But we want to be faithful to the whole of the Bible. That's why we preach through entire books. Because I know if I picked and choose the, the, the text of Scripture that I would preach from, I would always pick the ones that really called you out but never called me out. That's why we preach whole books, because we, we're going to get to verses that I would move past, that I would, I would skip over. And this is one passage that, that, let's be honest, I would never want to spend three weeks on. How God speaks to the way you and I are sexually broken. I would never want to do that. And yet, because we, preach, we want to preach the whole Bible, there are moments we need to, to be faithful to what the original authors of Scripture meant for us to hear, what their intentions for us to hear, where we need to sit and we need to listen so we want to preach the whole Bible. That's a part of why we're here this morning. But secondly, we want to be a thoughtful, humble church that loves people well. And there are a few issues more polarizing or more divisive than the, the questions around same-sex attraction. And for us as a church, to never speak, to never say anything, wouldn't be to not love anyone very well. 
But these are highly charged questions, and we as a church need to speak because we believe our scriptures have spoken, and we, believe a God, we, we, we worship a God who speaks into all of our lives. And we want to be a thoughtful church who loves people well, and so that's why we're here this morning addressing this question. And for, for me, as a, as a pastor, as I've, I've grown up in the church even, one thing that I've, I've just come to a place of, as I look at the question of same-sex attraction and the church, is that we as, a, we as a church, we as a body of Christ, we need to tell a better story. That we as Christians, I believe, have the best story to tell. The most compelling story in the world. And yet, for whatever reason, I don't think that's the story many people hear from the church today. And we need to tell a better story. And for me, that raises a few questions that I want to walk through, sort of using 1 Corinthians 6 as our guide, but really broadening out to the whole of the scriptures and to ask these four questions. One, why do we need a better story? Two, why is homosexual practice incompatible with the Bible? Thirdly, why should our view of sex come from the Bible? And fourthly, what story do we as Christians have to tell? That's a lot, so let's jump in. The first, why? Why do we need a better story? As I begin this morning, I think one of the questions I have to, to answer up front is, has the church gotten homosexuality wrong? And so that is a path, I would just say, both a resounding yes and a resounding no. And I think one space where we have gotten homosexuality wrong is that we as a church have often failed to demonstrate Christ-like love and grace to those who experience same-sex attraction. That often those who experience those attractions feel isolated and alone in our church or in our churches. And for Tony, a long time, she did not share her story with those around her. But when she finally did, even though our church was very loving and gracious and kind to, to, towards her, there were, there were still many moments when she just felt alone, like people did not understand where she was coming from. The people would just say, well, are you praying? She's like, of course I'm praying. I don't want this. I, I want something else. Of course I'm praying. And someone at one point told her, you just need to find the right guy. She wanted to find the right guy. She didn't ask for these attractions and didn't want these attractions. And those moments of people telling her advice rather than entering her story was a reminder how different she was, how alone she was. That the church has often failed to be a place to really hear and listen to the stories of those who experience same-sex attraction. But second, I think, and in, in, in more important is we've often, as a church, treated homosexuality or homosexual practice as a worse sin than others. And it's really not surprising, right? I mean, when I sin, when I do something wrong, I know there's a backstory, right? There's all sorts of reasons that led me into my sin, led me to, to, to why I did what I did. And I want people to know that story, right? The backstory, why it is I did what I did. Which is why when people sin the way I sin, I give them lots of grace, right? I know there's backstory there. I know there's other things going on in their heart. And yet, because many of us, right, we can't relate to same-sex attraction. We don't experience it. It's so easy for us to just dismiss it, to not enter into that story, right? That for us as a church, for, for a long time in this country, we did not have to listen to people who experienced same-sex attraction. They were a powerless minority. And so we didn't hear them. We didn't listen to their story. We didn't enter in. And now the result, the, the, the fruit of that is that many people have left the church and, and see that, that if you experience same-sex attraction, there's no hope for you to follow Jesus. That's two ways we've gotten wrong. And, and what I think most disappoints me about that is we as a church, we should be the one place 
that is the safest place for you to open up and share your story, no matter what it is. Right, the thing about our story as Christians is that Jesus became flesh. God came and dwelt among us. Right, that God didn't just shout at us from heaven what the rules were. Right? You need to live like this. Right? And then when we messed up the world and, and, and chased after our own desires, rather than God, God didn't yell louder at us. Right? He entered our story as a human being, as a weak, helpless child, to come and listen to us, to hear us, to enter our story. And because every one of our stories, you and I, because all of our stories include suffering and pain, his story included suffering and pain. A cross. That may we as a church be a place where anyone, especially those who experience same-sex attraction, can come and be heard and truly be listened to, to have people enter their story, no matter what it is. So yeah, we as a church, in many ways, have gotten homosexuality profoundly wrong. But I would also say, we haven't gotten it wrong. That to affirm homosexual practice is to deny the Christian story. And I realize I say that, and, and many of you in this room will, will hear that, and you, it'll make you angry. It'll make you want to throw something at me. I understand. I respect that. And I hope this morning you'll at least let me present the Christian story, why the Bible sees sexuality the way it does. You'll give me a space to hear, because I will give you a space to listen to you. Again, I would never start here as the conversation point. And yet the Bible has spoken. And we as a church need to be faithful to what Scripture has said and what it teaches. Because I'm convinced that the Bible tells a better story about human sexuality than what our culture tells. And I don't say that as someone who's never sat across from someone who experiences same-sex attraction. I say that because I've sat across from people who experience same-sex attraction. The Bible has a better story to tell us. And I understand that's a big claim. It's a huge claim, and that's something I need to take some time with. And so that leads us into the second question. Why? Why is it that homosexual practice is incompatible with the Bible? And then maybe you hear, or you, you, you even know me, you hear, listen to me tell that story of Tony, and your thought is, you know, the fact that you just wouldn't immediately affirm her sexual attractions is damaging to her. It's, it's bad for her. It's, it's another example of a church damaging someone and repressing someone. And I, listen, I understand that argument, but the reality is, is, is Christians and, and this world's view of sex come with very different assumptions. And we have to speak those, and I just want to own those. And if, if you push back against the Bible storyline, there are two assumptions in particular that, that I think just we have to name. At the first, and I spoke to this last week, but that our culture assumes that sexuality, it's a, it's a normal or it's a typical human appetite. Right? It's much like eating. And so if you eat, you can't eat too much, but you have to eat. If you don't eat, you starve. And so many people view sex that way. Right? You have to have sex, not too much. But if you repress yourself, if you deny your sexual desires, you're starving yourself. It's, it's unhealthy. It's, it's unnatural. It's damaging. That's one assumption we come with. The other assumption is, is just that, that we in our culture think our sexual desires are, are core to our identity. And to not embody or not to live out our sexual attractions is to deny who we are as people, to deny our very selves. And I would say in both cases the Bible affirms pieces of those assumptions. Yes, sex is a good appetite which God has given us. But it also denies, denies pieces of those assumptions. 
And I would say, listen, the Bible does clearly say our sexual desires, our sec- human sexuality is tied to, to who we are as human beings. And that's clear in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, in the creation story, when we read about why and how and, and the what of God's creation of us, we see why sex exists, why God made sex. And especially if you turn back to Genesis 1 and 2, what you'll find is that our genders as male and female was integral to the design of God. I have to look at Genesis 1, verse 27. Or you don't have to look, it'll be on the screen. God finishes his creation story, and he ends with the creation of man and woman. Here's what he says. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And a part of this story is that God, God makes human beings in his own image. And it takes both male and female to fully display and live out that image of God. In man and woman, there's radical difference, right? Men and women are very different and yet profound similarity, right? Both human beings and yet very different types of human being. And so complementarily, we as male and female image God, but in very different ways. And so that's why in many ways our sexual desires are core to who we are as human beings. They're a part of our being made in the image of God, and what this means then is, is then how you and I use sex can either enhance the image of God in us or it can efface, can damage the image of God in us. That in Genesis 2, when God begins to unpack the first marriage between Adam and Eve, we get a picture of what, what sex is, why it exists, what, what it's supposed to be about in verses 24 and 25. Here's what's written there about marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's the purpose of why sex exists. The the purpose of marriage and sex, which these two things are combined here in Genesis 2, is the one fleshing of two people. To give themselves wholly and completely to one another, physically and emotionally. Right, Every piece of your life. That's why last week I spent a lot of time unpacking why you cannot have sex outside of marriage. Because if you do, what you're saying to that person is, I don't want all of you, I just want part. I don't want the whole package, I just want one part of it. And the Bible says if you do that, you're using sex in a way God never intended it to be used. And so Genesis 2 presents sex as this gift from God. To be used in the context of marriage where men and women together as they unite image God in this unique, beautiful, and profound way. That's why it's only in the context of marriage. And yet you hear that and you think, okay, well, what, about, what about a marriage between two men and two women? What about a lifelong, committed, monogamous, same-sex marriage? Why wouldn't that fit into the Genesis 1 and 2 story? And the reason is, it, there's lots, but, but the main is it doesn't reflect the image of God. That's why Genesis 1.27 says, God made man and woman in his image, male and female, he created them. That, that two men together do not image God. That two females together don't image God the way a male and a female image God. That to unite together sexually as two men or two women is outside of how God designed us as creatures in our genders as well as how he designed sex. Because that's the, that's the question really that has to be answered. For us as Christians, at least, if we're going to push a, a, an agenda or a sexual ethic that's much different than our world, the question really is, well, does sex have a purpose? 
And if it has a purpose, does it have someone who made that purpose for a reason? Right, and if the answer is no, if sex doesn't have a purpose, then I'm, I'm wasting your time right now, right? You can use sex how you want, and you will never get this time back, and neither will I. But if sex, if it does have a purpose, if someone or some being made it with a reason and an intent behind it, then you can still use sex however you want, but not without cost. I mean, you can, you can drive your car into a lake and use it as a boat, and it might float for a while, but eventually it's, it's going to sink. And a part of what Genesis 1 and 2 is unpacking is God has, has purposed sex for a very specific design. And if you, if you go outside of that design, you'll sink. Right, and that's, that's not what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 when he says, if, if you keep, if you persist in heterosexual sex outside of marriage or homosexual sex, if you persist in that, you're breaking the no sex rule and God doesn't like that and you can't break the rules or else you're out. That's not the point of what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 6. What he's saying is, listen, God designed sex for a specific purpose. And if you decide, you know what, I'm not going to use it that way, I'm going to use it my own way, what you're really saying is to the one who made you in his own image, the one who created you and put you here on earth, what you're saying is, God, I don't want to build my, my life, my identity around you. I want to build it around my sexual identity, my sexual desires. I'm not interested in, in following after you. And, and to that person, I would just ask, would you want to be in the kingdom of God? Because I can tell you this, I mean, heaven, the kingdom of God itself has pleasures far beyond sex. And yet if a pleasure this small, we can't trust God and his design and what he's said and spoken, how would heaven, the kingdom of God, make any other sense? That's why Paul says, listen, if you persist in this life, whether it's sexual immorality or greed or pride, none of it, none of that stuff gets into the kingdom. You can't persist in it and enter the kingdom because God is the one who drives that kingdom. And you were made in his image. And to forsake that image and run from that image is to hate his kingdom and himself. And maybe you, you hear all that and you say, but Tim, it's, it's not fair because people with same-sex attraction, they don't, they don't choose that desi- those desires, right? Weren't they created with those desires? Didn't God make them like that? How can God make someone like that and then say, don't do that? And Christians have answered that question largely, at least in my, my history, uh, by, by trying to make the argument about, well, why do people experience same-sex attraction? It's a choice and they choose it and because they choose it, then it, that's, the choice is what makes it a sin, or what makes it wrong. But the reality is, is any therapist will tell you that the causes for same-sex attraction are deeply complex. And again, that's why we as Christians need to listen to every individual story. Because every person came to their same-sex attraction in a very different ways. Each story is unique. And so we need to listen. And Mark Yarhouse, a Christian psychologist who has written a very helpful book. It's called Homosexuality and the Christian. I highly recommend it to you, points out that we as Christians should not make the debate about why someone experiences same-sex attraction. That's a mistake. And I, I think he's right about that. The, the, the question isn't why does someone have same-sex attraction, is what are they going to do with those attractions? You're really left with a couple of options. And, and one, Yarhouse points out, there are people that, that have experienced change or, or didn't have as strong as same-sex desires that became or entered into uh, opposite sex relationships. But he also says there, there are some people that have a homosexual orientation which is that their same-sex attraction is lasting, it's enduring, it doesn't change without a miraculous act of God. 
And, and to those people in particular, it's, there's a choice, which is, one, and this is the, the predominant story, is, is form your identity around those sexual desires. Have a gay identity. Find homosexual partners. That's who you were made to be. You have to live into that. If you don't, you won't be fulfilled as a human being. Right, that's the predominant story of our culture. And as a pastor, I feel the weight of speaking against that story. And yet Mark Yarhouse would say there is another story, there's another option, which is your same-sex attractions are not core to who you are as a person, as a human being. They're just desires. And that your identity should be formed around Christ who reshapes and reforms and redirects and redefines our desires. And two Christians who have lived into that story, who have experienced lasting, uh, enduring same-sex attractions but have not formed a gay identity, who do not... Um, who, who actually live into a life of celibacy are, are Wesley Hill and Eve Tushnet. And I, I recommend highly both of their writings to you. They've both written good books, and I'm going to quote them through the rest of this morning. And they both, in both cases, have, have asked God to take those attractions away from them. In both cases, for whatever reason, God has not done that yet. And yet they, they don't form their identity around those sexual desires. They're, they're celibate Christians. And one of the things they both talk about, which is really helpful that we all need to hear, is that our sexual desires are not reliable guides for us as human beings. They're not reliable guides to God's will. They're not reliable guides to your own flourishing as human beings. Let me just ask all of us. If you followed your sexual desires, would it destroy your life or would it bring you a better life? I spoke to this some last week. I've spent enough of my life following my sexual desires to know they do not bring me life. They bring me ruin. They make me self-centered. They make me treat sex as my own. They make me treat other people as my property. It's, my sexual desires are not a reliable guide for God's will, whether they're heterosexual or same-sex attractions. Not, in both cases, they do not lead to the will of God for your life. That every one of us in this room, whether you experience same-sex attraction or not, we're left with the question of what are you going to form your identity around? Your desires, the things you want to do, or Christ, who will always reshape and reform and redirect whatever desires you have in your heart, no matter what they're about, whether they're sexual or not, whether it's pride or greed, that we all have desires. We can form our identities around. And the gospel says you can't. And that's why ultimately the Bible is, is incompatible with, with homosexual practice. Is that what that requires is you to form your identity around something that's outside of your image-bearing nature of God. It's outside of God's design and hope for your life. It's outside of, of the gift he's given you in, in your sexuality. It's not because you're breaking a rule, although it's, it's, it's a rule, but that, that's not why. It's because you're saying to God, I'd rather have my sexual desires than you. And maybe you, you hear all that and you think of another question, which is, well, Tim, there's, there are lots of churches that say you're wrong, that affirm same-sex um, practice, homosexual relationships, gay marriage, and say the Bible supports it. So what, I mean, why, why are you disagreeing with them? Why, why, why do they say that and you say something else? And I wish this could be a sermon in and of itself. And there's lots of good resources that I could point you to. But I'll, I'll say that, I'll just briefly bring up the two most common arguments people use to say that, well, the Bible doesn't really condemn homosexuality or, or homosexual practice. The first one being that Jesus never spoke about homosexual practice or homosexuality. 
This is somewhat true, but it's, it's completely irrelevant and deeply unfair. There are lots of things Jesus never spoke to. And the reason Jesus probably never mentioned homosexuality directly, although I do think he mentions it indirectly, is that he lived in a culture that had a unanimous consensus that homosexual practice was outside of God's design, right? Jesus lived in Israel that had the Old Testament. No one was advocating that people in, in that day should enter into homosexual marriages. No one was saying that. So that's why Jesus never felt the need to say it. Think of it like this. I, when I was pastoring in Indiana, rural church, so lots of students did 4-H, um, which meant lots of students attached their identity to to their, the way they raised their animals, the way they rode their horses, right? And so as a pastor, as someone who wanted to love those kids well, often I had to say, listen, your core identity is not attached to how well you ride your horse or how good your goat looks, <laughs> right? And you laugh because you can't relate to that, all right? I'm not going to spend a sermon ever here talking about how your self-worth is not tied to the pristineness of your goat. It's not. Right? You already accept that. I don't need to spend time there. That's why Jesus never felt the need to spend time in the, the topic of homosexuality. It was irrelevant to those. They, th- that, that culture had agreement. That's why Jesus never talks about it directly. And yet I would say he brings up marriage indirectly. Right? Matthew 19, Jesus uses Genesis 2 as his reason for what marriage is, a man and a woman. And why he, in that culture, said some very hard things to a culture of divorce that he was calling them to repentance of. He did bring up those sins because they were deeply relevant to that time and place. And it's why when we read 1 Corinthians or Romans, when Paul writes to Christians in the city of Rome and Corinth that accepted homosexual practice, homosexuality is mentioned because it was relevant to those churches. And beyond that, I would just say, Jesus, if he was God, and he had some, some incredible, he was God, um, but he had incredible courage, right? He, he accepted women, students as a rabbi, which no rabbi did in that day. He called the, the religious leaders to repentance in that day. That surely if, if we had gotten sexuality or our sexuality so wrong and we're oppressing and repressing people, Jesus would have said something. But it said Genesis 2, it's, it didn't mean that, it means this. But he didn't. And his silence should not be read to radically reinterpret the entire Bible. But to assume he trusted, we could read Genesis 1 and 2 and see the clarity of the design for marriage and sex there. So that's one reason why some churches say, you can be in a lifelong committed homosexual relationship. Jesus never said anything about it. The, the, the other one that gets brought up is that, that people argue the Bible doesn't prohibit committed lifelong same-sex relationships. And this is by far the most common argument that gets used today, that people say Paul didn't know of loving, committed, same-sex relationships, that he only knew of exploitative same-sex relationships where masters abused slaves or, or adults abused children. And the, the argument goes, had he known people like we know today, people born with innate homosexual attractions, who longed for committed, lifelong homosexual relationships, Paul would have been in favor of those relationships. And so when he talks about homosexuality, he's not talking about those relationships, he's just talking about abuse. But again, I don't think that's a very fair reading, or actually a very historical reading of Paul. That one, when scripture talks about homosexuality, it, it talks only about homosexual sex. Right? And so in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, when Paul says men who practice homosexuality, the literal trans- translation there is it's just men who have sex with one another. And anywhere in Leviticus, in, in 1 Timothy 1, in Romans, anytime homosexuality mentioned, the focus is on the practice. Right? Not about abuse, not about exploitation, not about the wrong context, but just any 
sex that's not a man and a woman is, is considered outside of God's design. So Paul had a chance to make that distinction. He never did. But more importantly, it's, it's Paul did know of committed same-sex loving relationships in that day. And we, know, we could say that with complete confidence. Paul knew homosexuality much like we know it today. That we can look at the, ra- the writings of, of Plato and Ptolemy and other writers of Paul's day who advocated for and were in homosexual marriages. And this, even, this reflects Paul's own words from Romans 1 when he begins to speak about both men and women in same-sex relationships. Here's what he, he writes. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. That language, they were consumed with passion for one another, speaks of reciprocal love. It speaks of a relationship, not abuse, not of exploitation. That Paul's disagreement with homosexual practice in those verses is because it's contrary to nature. It's contrary to Genesis 1 and 2 where God made male and female in his image. And so that's why virtually all scholars today, whether liberal or conservative, whether gay affirming or more in my camp, which is that same-sex experience is not a way to live out God's design. Everyone agrees. Paul knew homosexuality like we know it today. That's not an overstatement. That really frustratingly to me, it's only liberal Christian pastors who continue to put this argument out. That Paul, he just didn't know what we know today and, and we just know more about sexuality than Paul do. No, we don't. We're, we, we, he did not know less than we know. We know everything Paul knew. And if you want to dive into the long... Footnoted research with that. Rob, Rob Gagnon's The Bible and Homosexual Practice is a good resource, although I don't necessarily recommend it unless you want some tough sledding reading. But the point is he quotes from LGBTQ uh, scholars, from gay-affirming Christians, from liberal historians who all say Paul knew homosexuality just like we know it. He's condemning all homosexual practice, not just one subset of homosexual practice. That he was aware, like we are, of people who love one another And yet their attractions are same sex and want to have a marriage or a relationship around that. And yet Paul still said that's not a way to live in God's design. That I would just, I would humbly suggest that that homosexual practice is incompatible with the Bible. No matter what it is or what its expression is, there's no way out of that. That to accept homosexual practice is to have, you have to get rid of the Bible. Which leads to the third question, well, okay, well, why? Why not get rid of the Bible? Why should the Bible be where our view of sex comes from? One of the pastors that I, I looked up to when I was in high school um, was a guy named um, Rob Bell. And Rob, uh, like us here in Shawnee, planted a church in Michigan, although he had way more guts than I have or ever will have, because he began that church by preaching through the book of Leviticus. Because he had, at least someone told me this, that he had such faith in God's word that you could preach through Leviticus and people would still come because it's God's word. And his church grew and it, he was right. And yet, sadly, he's sort of begun to go in a much different direction with his faith and the way he looks at scripture and, and recently gave an article or gave a, an interview and, and said this about the way we as a church um, should look at scripture with respect to homosexuality. Here's what he, he said. So I think culture is already there. And the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best offense. When you have in front of you flesh and blood people who are your brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles, co-workers and neighbors, and they love each other and they just want to go through life. 
And what Rob's saying there to me has force, doesn't it? It's hard to respond to. And maybe you're even wondering, well, why respond? Why maintain the Bible's sexual ethic when you were sitting across from someone who, who just wants love, just wants a good life? And that's a long sermon that could write itself, right? There could be, we as a church, we have to give a long answer to that. And I would even say in a couple weeks, when we have a sermon and talk through singleness, we'll speak to some of, I think, what Rob's getting at, which I think he's incorrect in. But for this morning, I would offer two thoughts. One from um, someone who experienced same-sex attraction herself, Eve Tushnet, who I mentioned earlier. In her book, she writes this about why we need a church and a Bible when it comes to these issues. She says this, part of the reason we have a church in the first place, only a part but an important part, is so that we're not left to make up our own minds on every single issue. The church exists because even the saints need guidance and often correction. Right, one of the greatest mistakes I could make as a pastor or just as a Christian is to say, you know what, despite thousands of years of church history, despite the fact that the people who gave their lives for Jesus, who walked with Jesus and knew Jesus in this life, despite everything they say and teach and do, I'm going to go off in my own direction and say something completely new and completely different. That's a terrible idea. I mean, if this church is built on my ideas, we are doomed. Right? That, that, that's, that's not what we are. The story that we have entered as Christians, if you're in Christ... Is a story that existed long before you were here and it will continue long after you're gone. And this story that we have entered is not our own story. It's not our, it's, I don't own it. And there are parts of this story I love that move me to tears, that give me great hope. And there are parts of this story that I hate because they call out the brokenness and the sin and the messed up stuff in my own heart. I don't have the right to rework this story into my choosing. I don't have the right to pick and choose what I accept and what I don't. To pick up this book and, and decide which part of the story I'll teach and what part I won't. This isn't my story. It's God's story. And wherever you're at this morning, I would just encourage you, take the whole thing or don't take any of it. Don't hold on to a piece as if you can, can hold on to Jesus while rejecting things that he said, other things that he said. This is a coherent, complete, full story. You can't have a part. But more than that, the other piece where I just push back gently with, with Rob is, is that, I mean, is culture really to be the thing that drives what we believe and say? I mean, who wants to just be an empty shill for the world around us? Right, especially you students who I'm sure you're having the most problem with some of what I'm saying, Right? You have idealism in your bone for a reason. The reason you don't want to just accept everything adults say to you is because you know there's a sense in which what's really true isn't always what's just shared or what's just commonly accepted. And I loved Rob, growing, Rob Bell growing up because he was so countercultural. He spoke things that were so against the grain of what people thought and said in the church in particular. And now that he's come to this place where it's just, you know what, people already believe this and, and say this, so let's just give up. That kills me. That's not who we are as Christians. Because we have a better story to tell. These aren't just letters written 2,000 years ago. These are letters written by a man named Paul who hated Christians, was persecuting them, and then Jesus himself stopped him in his tracks and saved him. And Paul himself was a pastor who sat across from people who had same-sex attraction 
and yet still maintain the Bible's sexual ethic. And we know this to be true. I mean, we look at verse 11 that we read in 1 Corinthians 6, right? Paul says, you can't enter the kingdom of God if you persist in your, your heterosexual sex outside of marriage or if you engage in homosexual sex. And then verse 11, he says, and such were some of you. That Paul had gay friends that came to Christ and gave up their gay identity to follow Jesus. That's what he's saying in verse 11. That Paul's just not some ancient relic that we can just, um, just, just ignore. He walked the same story, the same struggles, the same questions. He sat across from the same people you and I sit across from. And he said to them the same thing we must continue to say as a church, which is Jesus is a better story than your own sexual desires. It will bring you more life, more joy. That's why as a pastor, I won't leave Scripture's story. It'll be the authority for me until the day I die. Because there are parts of this story that if you throw out, you, leave, you lose all kinds of good hope. Right? The Bible says things about grace and God's love for you that are said nowhere else, in any other religion, in any other faith, in any other worldview. That's a, that's a high cost to pay. And, and that leads to, to, to our last question this morning, which is what, what is the story that Christians have to tell? And I would begin by just saying, listen, if we're Christians, if you're in Christ, all of our stories began in the same place, right? We are all sinners destined for loneliness, right? That's Paul's point in verse 9 and 10, right? That, that we all chased after things outside of the kingdom, ran away from God in our own way, in our own greed, our own sexual immorality, our own pride, our own sin, whatever it was, whatever your desires were, you ran after them away from God toward a lonely existence, that loneliness is not a life without sex. That loneliness is not a life without a romantic partner. Loneliness is a life without Jesus. And if, that, if the Bible story is true, that's, that's the truth that we all have to live into. Right? And for whatever reason, we as a culture, we've made this, this uh, equivalency to where sex is love. Right? If, you're not, if you don't have sex, you don't have love. And yet, I would say, I think, whether you're a Christian or not, surely you read the pages of the gospel, see Jesus' life, and see he was a man of love who gave his life for other people, and yet Jesus never had sex. Was, was Jesus a lonely, cursed existence? That loneliness isn't a life without sex. It's a life without Jesus. It's a life where we're running away from our God towards our own desires, away from the God who loves us. And that's, again, why, why we as Christians, right, we don't see any sin as worse than any other sin. Because who cares why you're running away from God? The point is you're running away. Whatever reason you're running, it is. Whatever reason that is, it's foolish. It's ridiculous. Whatever it is, there's no better reason to run away from God. And yet Paul's point here is that we, even though we were all running away from the kingdom, God brought us back in, washed us, sanctified us, justified us. So that he could make us his. Now that's the point of verse 19. That was sort of the big idea last week. That, that we are not our own. And one book I hope you'll read after this morning is, is Wesley Hill's Washed and Waiting. That Wes is a Christian who has experienced same-sex attraction, enduring. He's sought healing. He's not found it. So therefore he believes God has called him to a life of celibacy. Now, Wes's story is powerful, and in particular, there's a section in the book where he says, listen, I know what you think I'm doing is crazy, 
that I'm pursuing celibacy, that I'm, I'm, I'm forsaking romantic relationships in my life. But he says, I want to lay out for you the reasons why the Christian story is better than a story of me chasing after romantic partners. And he starts by saying, first, Jesus forgives sins. Right? We are washed, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. That's, part of, that's why the first word in Wes's book title is washed in waiting. We are washed, we are forgiven into Christ's family. And it's not just that Jesus impersonally forgives us. He welcomes us as his own. But if I'm his, it means I'm not mine. It means I give up my rights to him. And Wes has this beautiful section in his book where he talks about every Christian is challenged by that thought. The thought that I'm not my own and I have to give up everything to him. He says, he says this. The message of what God has done through Christ reminds me that all Christians, whatever their sexual orientation, to one degree or another experience the same frustration I do as God challenges, threatens, endangers, and transforms all of our natural desires and affections. He goes on to say, the gospel proclaims that we belong to God twice over. First, because he created us, and second, because he has redeemed us through the work of his Son, Though it sounds politically incorrect to modern ears, the gospel has always said that God may demand from us what he wants since we don't belong to ourselves. And Jesus will make demands on your life. He's made demands on mine. But they're never arbitrary demands. Jesus will never put a demand on you to crush you. He's already been crushed for you. That any demand he puts on you is because he knows Without it, you'll run away from him. And you're not your own, you're his. That the Christian story is my identity is in Christ. And really, truly, why would we put our identity anywhere else? Why would we put our identity in our sexual desires? Don't those often just lead us to more shame and more guilt? Could those ever speak the value or self-worth into your life that Jesus can One of the best sections I read from either Eve Tushnet or West Hill was when Eve begins to speak into what it means that she has her identity in Christ and not her sexual desires. And I want to read just an extended passage from her writing. I just encourage you, if you're okay, if it's not weird, close your eyes and really picture what she's saying here. This is beautiful stuff to me. Here's what she, she writes. The most important thing about your life isn't its secret at shames, even though that's how we often feel. And the most important verdict on your life isn't your own. The way your life looks objectively is the way it looks to God, the life of his beloved child. Try to picture yourself right now through God's eyes. Try to see yourself with eyes of life. Then remove everything from that image that discourages you, the disappointment you may be imagining, or the yes, I love you, but sorry, or the stern, tough love glare. When all that's gone... What is left is clear and steady. A look that gazes directly in your eyes rather than looking down on you. That is the God who knows you, understands you, and loves you. Even, now especially, when you are least capable of loving yourself. That is the Christian God. That no other religion says anything close to that. And yet, don't you long for that? Right? Don't you long for an identity built in a God who knows you and loves you and understands you, especially when you can't love yourself? And yet that identity is not available to you in any place but Christ. You won't get it from your sexual desires. You won't get it anywhere 
but from a God who loved you, who made you, and sent his son for you. Now, when I was sitting across from Tony in that moment, I, I realized, frankly, just a lot of my own pastoral malpractice. That when, generally, when people wanted to become Christians, I would ask them the doctrinal questions, right? Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Do you believe he's Lord? Do you believe he's this? And, and listen, those are really important. But that's not the question. The question is, is what do you think of Jesus? I remember looking at her and, and actually becoming convinced in my own heart of things that I should have been convinced about a long time ago and just tell, telling Tony, you know what, Tony, if you follow Jesus, he's going to ask you to go places you would never go. He's going to ask you to do things you'd never do. But go anyway. Because there's no one who will love you more than him. There's no one who will die for you more than him. There's no one who will never stop pursuing you like him. You'll get that from nowhere else. So go after him with everything you have. And at least in that moment of her life, she decided a life with Jesus was worth a life of celibacy. We got to baptize her a couple weeks later. I had to watch my wife baptize Tony, and I wish that was the end of her story, but the reality is all of our stories are deeply complicated, right? Where our desires take us away from God, and then we know we need to come back. And I don't, I don't mean to tell her story like it's a simple one. It's not. But we as Christians have a better story to tell. Because I know wherever she is in this moment, Jesus is still pursuing after her, has not given up on her, and never will. And I don't get that from any story but this place, the same place that tells me my sexual desires are not a good guide to life. I can't build my identity around them. That my identity can only and must only come from God. The God who knows me, who understands me, who loves me, especially when I can't love myself. That's the Christian God. And there's no better story. Let's pray.